For this podcast, I have Tony Watley on. Um, he is the author of Side Hustle Millionaire. He is also the host of the 360 Driven Podcast. He is a business and executive coach with a community of over 500,000 members. He has been featured in Forbes Without Pain, and he's bought and sold businesses for millions in his time. So he's the definition of an entrepreneur being able to repeat a process over and over again and show that there's there's an actual science behind that. So I, I hope you guys enjoy this podcast and, and, and get some value out of that. Okay, that's just like my dad. He's smart though. He's he's probably one of the only ones that has him at least like in his friend group. You know, like everybody else is like too lazy to prepare. So I'm like, mm. but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess for the people that are listening, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is Tony Watley. I'm a business coach, a podcast host, and a speaker. And I'm in Houston, Texas, as we mentioned. But I. I guess my unique story is I built side businesses while working a corporate career in oil and gas, and I made millions of dollars from my part-time side businesses, and they were in automotive performance. Got you. So in regards to um, being able to go ahead and pull that off and make those millions in the process, how did that work while you were working a corporate job? Oh, for me, I was... Being an engineer, I was really good at creating systems and processes and being able to teach other people and train other people to do the things I needed to get done. And I, it was very essential for me to do that because I was working in offshore oil and gas, and sometimes I'd be gone for a month. I'd be in different countries, sometimes with or without internet. So I had to get really good at being able to fire myself from my company to be able to have other people do that. So, you know, it, it was really became a, a passive thing. I, I spent less than an hour a day on it at the most. And we had other people running the servers and doing all the other things after a while. So about the first year, I really put it in for myself. And then as we started to make some good revenue, I started to hire other people to do things I needed to do. Got you. Okay. How was the the process of becoming an engineer for you? How old did you start getting into that? Painful? Painful. How old were you when you got into that? I went to engineering school because I was on the quest to earn six figures, and they always tell you you need to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Yeah. And I love cars, so I figured that mechanical engineering maybe gives me the best opportunity to learn a little bit about what's in cars and also to, to maybe make some money. And I, w- I would say it was average at best at math, and engineering is basically a math degree other than two classes. Like, if I would have took theory of math, I would have had a, a minor in math. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> I struggled. I was working full-time in construction. You know, I paid for college myself. It took me seven years. So I was working outdoor construction and oil and gas refineries, and I was waiting tables, and I was also a mechanic on Saturday mornings. So three jobs, sleep deprivation, broke, stressed out, anxiety, bad relationships, but I never quit because whenever I do start something, I just see it through. I never changed majors. I never quit, and I just sucked it up and did it. Mm-hmm. I think that's 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 amazing. I mean, that's the American dream in short. Uh, one of the podcasts that I listened to, uh, I believe, is one of the clips. It, I, I'm sure you have the same trade as as this guy did as well. But he was saying that his toxic trade is basically like that he either goes all in or all out. That's from that's what it sounds like from your end as well, right? Is uh aside from college and your businesses, obviously, what would you say that's that's something you go all in and all out on? I think really I, I, that kind of characteristic go, 
goes across all the things that you get involved with. And for mm-hmm. me, if I decide I'm going to commit to doing something, whether that's learning a new skill or uh, some something I have a lot of interest in, I decide at that moment, do I do I half-ass it? To me, that's not even worth starting. Mm-hmm. Or do I do the research, do the reps, do find people that can help me get better at that, improve things? Can I pay to get a little bit faster results? Mm-hmm. And if I decide that I want to go all in, I go all in. And I've done that many times in my life. I mean, for example, even you know, for like billiards, like like people like to go shoot pool. Well, I didn't start playing pool until college because there was a university that had a game room. And I said, okay, I had some friends there. And we'd play, play a little bit of pool once in a while. And I decided if I'm going to play pool, I want to be really good at this. And, you know, so I hired a coach and I did reps and I watched videos and I read books and and anytime I wasn't doing anything with, with university or working, I was playing pool and, and I became a, a collegiate nine ball billiards champion in the, in the Southwest region and uh, beat 500 people in a major tournament. So I, I decided to go all in and that was only about three years into my learning how to play. So public speaking was the same way. I had stage fright. I didn't like being on stage. I didn't like being on camera. And 2017, I've decided that I needed to become the right person to carry the message that I have and, and also to speak about the book that I wrote. And so I joined Toastmasters and I hired a speaking coach and I showed up every Monday and I raised my hand and made myself very uncomfortable. And I did era videos on social media every single day for over a year to get better and practice what I was learning in, in the public speaking classes. And that led me to competing in public speaking competitions and winning those and standing on stages with Ed Milet and Jesse Itzler and Damon John and these big names that I just idolized and and watched for years on on their social media. But if you want to go do something, you have to determine who is doing it best. How can I learn from them? Is there a way I can pay to get access to them and learn even better? What are the reps? Because none of this stuff ever happens without you actually taking the reps and doing the work and being willing to suck. Most people are unwilling to suck at anything and they have too much ego, too much pride, and they aren't willing to start because of that, because maybe they've got a certain perceived status or reputation that they're, they're good at something. We're all good at something. And then when you want to go try something new, they have to be willing to suck and be a, a beginner, a noob at that. And most people are unwilling to do that. I have no shame in being willing to suck to understand that I'm going to start from the bottom. This is something new to me, and, but I'm going to get the really fast results by putting in the reps and doing the work. Mm-hmm. So that just sounds like what you do, how you do one thing is how you do everything in short, basically. Right. Absolutely. I, yeah, no, I, I, how did you become the person that you are today? Cause obviously, um, more than likely I would assume that you weren't always like this, obviously as a kid, um, you might've been of course, but like, how was that transition? Like if you weren't and to becoming this person that you are today? Yeah, I get it from my two disciplinarian parents uh, i'm half japanese i was actually born in japan okay mom, and she was very disciplinary when it came to education so you know being from her era the women did not get a full education they went to junior high and they basically got plucked out of junior high and went to go work in the farms so she always valued education because she didn't get to have that she got to see the boys keep going to school but not the girls and so my sister and i we did not miss a single day of school from kindergarten through graduation it was basically, I don't care if you're dying, your ass is getting on that bus and you're going to school. So I had a very disciplinarian education, as you can imagine. People mm. talk about the, what they say, the, the Asian dragon lady mamas. Like, <laughs> I had one of those. I mean, the house was spotless. You had to have respect and honor and and, you know, and uh, respect nature and all these different things. That's what they, that's their, their, their code of values. And 
my dad was a veteran from the Vietnam War, U.S. Marine, so combat vet sergeant in the military, and you can imagine he was the disciplinarian in all the other regards, leadership and showing up on time and, you know, just being polite and doing things the right way and not half-assing. So I, I greatly benefited, although I resented that as a kid, obviously, because when you're being told what to do and, you know, sometimes my dad was like really hard on me about things and not give me reasons why I needed to know. It was mm-hmm. kind of like my way or the highway type thing. I don't recommend doing that to your kids, by the way. I raised my son a little bit differently. I would tell him what he needed to do, but I would tell him why he needed to do it. And so he, he became a lot better at just doing the things because he understood the reason behind it. And my dad was just used to barking orders, and I don't I don't recommend that for anybody. So that's that's where the disciplinarian things came in. And we grew up in basically the crappiest houses in our neighborhoods. And so I basically lived in three flip homes while we were flipping the like building the house out and making it one of the nicer homes in the neighborhood. And that's just how I lived. And I learned to have appreciation and gratitude for the things that we had, no matter how small or how frugal we had to live. And so for me, growing up without money just meant I need to figure out on my own how to go create money. Mm-hmm. And did you get to that point when you were maybe in high school or is that maybe during your college years where you're going through the struggle itself? No, for me, it started probably age 10, okay. looking at how, how can I make money, and I was pushing the lawnmower around the neighborhood, knocking on doors, anybody mm-hmm. had tall grass, and asking if I could have $10 to mow their front and backyard, yeah. and balancing the gas can on top of the motor while I was pushing it, and I remember my friends riding their bicycles by and laughing at me because I was working, mm-hmm. and again, I didn't have any shame about that, because I didn't have a skateboard, I didn't have the newest video game, I didn't have the fancy brand name shoes or bicycles unless I paid for them for myself. The only time I got gifts was birthdays and Christmas and I'm born in November. So I got all my gifts in November and December. So for the rest of the year, I had to figure out how to, how to do that for myself. Same. Yeah. My, yeah, my, my birth job, dude, I was mowing yards, walking dogs, washing cars, raking leaves, whatever I could to make a few bucks, buying candy at the corner store and, putting in little Ziploc bags and, and taking to the school and selling it for double what I paid for it. So I've always been like that, that kidpreneur, the hustler, but mm-hmm. I didn't think about it as being a business owner. I just thought about it as like, I'm not where I want. I'm not where I want to be. I'm not getting what I want. So what do I need to go do to figure out how to get that? And that's just who I am. Okay. And I think you worded that very nicely at the very end. I think in regards to thinking, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. I think you should be having that mindset in particular. Where am I at and where do I want to be at? And what am I willing to do to get to that point? Obviously morally and ethically, of course, (laughs) to um, like for sure. But there's a, that's a, that's a thing that a lot of people need to get into their heads where they're proceeding and learning to where they want to be in their life and for their future. Um, I guess going back to your son and, and to how your dad raised you, what would you say is like the biggest difference as opposed to barking orders and how you're raising them? Can you give me some examples on that? Like as, as to how you're yeah. parenting in short. Yeah, I was really aware of things as a kid and I would always question things in my mind instead mm-hmm. of absorbing things as, as gospel or uh, this is the way it is and this is what you should believe and so I've always been open, open-minded open and awareness of this. And, for example, I remember you know, my dad would come home and he'd be really angry most of the time because he hated his job. I get it. He worked outside in, in Houston. It's really hot and a lot of jackasses working for him. So he's always having to deal with employees and, like, people, like, you know, just not doing their jobs. And, and whenever he'd get laid off from a, a job because it was maintenance contracts, he worked in the chemical plants, 
You know, it was kind of like he just avoided dad. I mean, he wasn't physically abusive, but he was just like, let him calm down. He's going to go have a shower. And by the time he makes it to the dinner table and watches TV a little bit, he'll start to be able to open up. And I remember being a kid and, and, and observing that and asking myself, is that what it takes to be a man? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to grow up and be angry when I come home? And, and I wouldn't say take it out on my family, but but also you're just the, the energy, the negative energy around that. And I was like, am I supposed to go home and be grumpy and like need time to unwind and then I can have some family time. And, and I remember just thinking to myself, well, I don't want to be like that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be like that. Where some people unfortunately learn those habits and go, well, that's what it takes. That's what it is. This, because you see them become adults. They're just repeating the same problems that their parents had. And if their dad had a temper and was screaming at the windshield when he's road raging and cussing, they grew up doing the same things because it's an observed behavior that we adopt and so i would listen to my teachers and my parents and friends and friends parents and i kind of just started to figure out who i wanted to become that was different from them and and i would say i'm a mix of a lot of good and, and I, i'm not perfect you're not perfect but I just, I just remember that there was a lot of things he did right a lot of things he did wrong and i tried to make sure that i wanted to make the right choices for myself mm-hmm Okay. I think that's a, that's a very good thing to, you're, you're, you're basically taking your perspective as a kid into the position that you're in right now and passing those skills and, and lessons onto your son. How, how old is he right now? If you don't mind me asking. I'm sorry. How, how old is your son right now? If you don't mind me asking. He's 21. He's 21. And okay. I quit telling him what to do at around age 14. Okay. But I would give him advice. Mm-hmm. I would encourage him and I would challenge some of the beliefs he had, but just barking orders and telling kids what to do. And, and for example, I don't recommend people go to the university and get a degree unless it's something that's going to be useful. Mm. I think that when I was younger, I mean, I graduated high school in 91 for context. Education was not really available. I mean, we had encyclopedias, you know, yeah. a library full of books, but there was nobody out there with YouTube teaching you things. There was no online courses. There was no podcast. There was, None of that. So if you needed information, you had to go buy the information. You had to go to the university and pay people to teach you things, to get the curriculum, and then get the little piece of paper, which my engineering degree is still hanging on the wall right now. Mm -hmm. It's not being used anymore. But so in a different era, you had to go pay for information. Nowadays, well, the other thing, there was a fear factor back then. I remember that era, the 80s, 90s, people would be like, hey, if you don't go to get a degree, you're going to be broke. And you're going to be hanging on the back of a, a garbage truck or doing some, or working in the chemical plants the rest of your life. They would scare you into going to college mm-hmm. because they were trying to push the education movement in the United States. And I get that because I, I was a product of that. That's what I, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that. Like, let me go get my degree. Let me go get a degree. It'll pay me six figures. And, and so that was my process, my mindset, because all my family never went to college, nobody and both sides of my family. And so I was the first one to go do it. I had to figure out how to do it on my own because nobody had ever done that. And so... Nowadays, information is readily available. You're better off working for free from somebody that's achieved that what you want to be and being like an apprentice that works for free. You're better off going to go work for free for two or three years under someone who's achieved success and learning to be what they do what they do mm. than you are going to university. And some people are like, well, Tony, I would never work for free. Are you kidding? You crazy? I would never work for free. <laughs> but you'll go pay. Fifty to sixty to seventy thousand dollars to learn from middle manager university professors who have never achieved anything in their life. You're paying to go to school to learn from them, 
but she mm-hmm. wouldn't work for free from someone who's actually succeeded. See how, see how, see how society kind of screws us up in that regard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you kind of answered the question that I wanted to ask, which was, what do you think about college? But yeah, I think you hit it right on the right on the nail when you were saying that for the most part, you're better off working for somebody else for free than in regards to like what you're doing. Are you trying to be an entrepreneur? Are you trying to be um, an executive? Whatever it might be. Uh, I think that's more practical in regards to college. I guess in regards to the, um, I guess the, what they teach that's not, how do I say it without being mean? <laughs> I guess um, not non-essential. What 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 do you think about those people that are going to college for that? Do you think it's a waste of their time or? I think they're misguided. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I mean, why would anyone take on fifty to a hundred thousand dollars of debt or even two hundred thousand dollars debt when you go into the master's programs and grad school and all that? Like, why would anyone take on that debt to get out of the university and make fifty thousand dollars salary? It's just it's a terrible economic decision. First of all, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of times people join universities because of how good their football program is Mm -hmm. because they want to feel like I'm something special because I went to this school and they have a good football team. Mm -hmm. Like who gives a shit? Like, let's be honest. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter when you become an adult and you get out and actually in the workforce, nobody cares where you went to school. They Mm -hmm. just don't. I mean, I hired thousands of engineers and I just looked and see what their capabilities are and did they interview well and did they have the right personality and demeanor and the, the core values that I could, discern from just having a conversation with them i didn't care where they went to school so it's a big fallacy and universities do this and all alumni likes to do this because they're all super proud and guys like when i, I went to the university of houston and back then they were the, they were the, the conference champions in football for like two years back then i didn't go to a single football game mm-hmm. and they were the champions while i was there yeah i, I didn't care it just it's like i'm here for an education i'm here to get my stuff done and get out of here and and when people tell me, like, oh, I really loved university. It was such a great experience. Well, that tells me they, they probably had someone pay for it. Mm-hmm. They, to be honest, they, they probably had somebody pay for it. Mm-hmm. Because if you had to work full time and go to school, you probably don't really enjoy your college years. Let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. Yeah, especially with you and your position when you were working your way for those seven years. One of the things that I've noticed as well, in, in particular to people that – uh, essentially that they're saying that, hey, I, I love college or I wish I could go back. Yeah, it usually relates to mommy and daddy are paying for it, but as well as people like that are are stuck living in the past and, and that that's the highlight of their life. They're not really looking for anything forward to their future. They have, they're just looking to go back to their boss, work that nine to five and, and that's it. And that's that's it. That's that's the end for them, you know? Like their, their prime was, is way beyond them. I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I had, didn't have fun in my 20s, right? Mm-hmm. But I have had fun in my teens, my 20s, mm-hmm. my 30s, my 40s. I, mm-hmm. I, there's always opportunities to have fun. It wasn't based on where you were at the time or in college. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just, it's a, yeah, I love that. I, I say this about the friends and the people you, sur- you, you surround yourself with is that you need to stop surrounding yourself with so many people that talk about remember when. Yeah. And start finding people that talk about imagine when. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's really nice. I, I think that's really nicely said, yeah, because that's one thing that that you need to focus on more than than you being better than what you were yesterday, becoming the best version of yourself as, as cheesy as it sounds. But it's true. I'm like, that's I know that's repeated over and over again. But how many people are actually applying it and actually just know the information in their own head? Because I'd, I'd venture to say that a lot of people, they they know the advice, like kind of let's go back to the gym, right? So people know what they need to do. They need they know that they need to eat good. They know they need to work out three to five times a week. They know they need to get a good sleep. But how many people are actually implementing that? Not much compared to the people who actually have access to that information. So I'd I'd say it's it's really similar. Um, what's your what's your son going to college for? He's just taking courses. I didn't tell him to go to or, or I didn't tell him to go or not to mm. go. I just let him do his choice and okay you know he's, he's he was a ski instructor for a while in, in utah and he enjoyed mm-hmm. that and he came back to houston and he's like you know i, I think i want to take courses like cool mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't know exactly what he wants to major in I'm, I'm, like i said i i give him advice but i quit telling him what to do and and that's just how it should be man i think people too many times like i'm a business coach now right mm-hmm. and i have clients that want to work with me and they come to me and they're just not happy you know, they, they mm. maybe they want to start a side business, but they're just not happy with their profession, their career. And these people are in their thirties and forties, right? And they're not happy. And, and we start to really go and dissect why they're not happy. Mm-hmm. And you think it's the surface level things like, Oh, my boss is an ass or, you know, the company is mean to me or that's what you think it is. But a couple of times in situations, we actually started digging down deep in their core and understanding that they were actually fulfilling their parents' dream for them. They never really did what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Their parents forced them into a degree plan, forced them into a career path. Maybe that was a legacy in the family. Like, oh, we've all been attorneys, so you need to be an attorney too. And we know connections, so if you get the legal you know, law degree, you can go here and we'll we'll help you with the career. And it sounds great because if, if you're just thinking of it from a financial sense, you're like, okay, that's a good path. And path of least resistance and I've got the connections and the network and that yeah I'm gonna go do that and then you do that for 20 years and you realize you're miserable because you wanted to go be a pilot mm-hmm. or you wanted to be a rapper or a singer you know it's like too many times kids are just influenced by their authoritarian figures in their life but they're not doing what they want to do and then they become adults operating in lives that they never were meant intended for and they just knew that there's something wrong with that the entire time, but they're just willing to take the paycheck mm-hmm. because the paycheck pays you just enough to tolerate what you do. You know, let's be honest. If it didn't pay you enough to tolerate what you do, you'd be figuring out something else to do. Mm-hmm. Or you'd be adopting that mentality. It's what else can I do to get to where I want to be? Like how you had when you were younger. I think that's a very interesting perspective, especially to have as a kid, but a very good telling indicator of who you'll become in the future at the same time. So that's a that's really cool, and I really envy that. I don't think I had that until recently. So I'm I'm aspiring I'm aspiring to get to that point. <laughs> ask a kid, ask a kid like five five six years old or younger, like mm. what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'll tell you, and they and they dream big. Be an astronaut. I want to be an NFL quarterback. They 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 dream big. So what happens between kindergarten and, and 12th grade? Why are our dreams so crushed by society and teachers that don't believe in you and, and talk down to you and say, you'll never amount to this or your parents and reality and like, oh, I quit dreaming. You need to quit dreaming so big. Like that's what happens. Mm-hmm. We're conditioned to believe that we can't achieve and we just settle. We just settle for life. And it's really sad. So think about when you were a little kid, you know, Jesus, what did you want to be when you wanted to grow up? 
when uh when i was a kid i wanted to be a firefighter see yeah Your dreams you want to be a hero you want to contribute to society and, and and it's a very honorable role it's just like being in the military it's just like i want to serve i want to help other people mm-hmm. so what happens if you become an attorney and you work 20 years being an attorney and you're gonna be like man just something is paying well and i should be happy everybody's telling me i'm successful mm-hmm. but why am i not feeling happy see what i mean mm-hmm. yeah you've met the the salary requirements based off of uh, a society that's not spoken in short and yeah like you said you're you're supposed to be happy you're supposed to be grateful this is the life you're supposed to have quote unquote but in reality like you said that doesn't really fulfill who you are as a human being that just fulfills your place in society but do you really want to be a part of society or do you want to be an outlier do you want to live life on your own terms and and i and i i think i said this on the last podcast um once you get a taste of freedom you never want to go back that 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 becomes addicting it's like no i i I can't stand working for somebody i'm going to find this find a way one way or another and kind of going back to what you were saying about the dream so i interviewed um i interviewed Gigi harville her her son's an artist he's he's 17 um, he already bought his own house. He's, he's already has a few deals with a few record labels and everything. Um, when he was a kid, he, I believe he was like eight or 10 years old. And he said that he wanted to be on New York. Uh, he wanted to be in New York times. Um, he wanted to be like one of the faces that was over there for when they were going to be f- performing. And his teacher was like, think of something more realistic. So, yeah. So, so they shot him down and recently he posted on on his instagram he was like here you go mrs so and so and he was on the face of new york times because he didn't let that contain him he wasn't just boxed in like everyone else because at the same time you need to have a certain mindset in order to be able to escape those boundaries that you set within yourself dude my whole life has been people still telling me what i can't do Mm -hmm. you know and thing is that most people will give you advice well let's be honest everybody will give you advice mm-hmm. everybody will give you their two cents sometimes you need to give them a refund sometimes you just <laughs> need to give them change because a piece of their advice is good but not all of it mm-hmm. and the thing is is that people's advice is always based on the context of their own experience their own fears their own failures and their own risk tolerance mm-hmm. so when you tell someone that's plugged into a corporate job for 40 years and and their steady job air quotes mm-hmm. making less than six figures and you tell me i want to go start a business like oh that's that's really risky yeah you sure you want to do that that's really risky you should you should get a steady job and, and it sounds good and it may be from your uncle charlie who's who loves you and, you and he's always giving you good advice and he taught you how to fish and you think well you know why would he steer me wrong he loves me mm-hmm. you gotta understand that who is the person you're asking advice or sometimes not even asking they're just giving it to you anyways let's be real and what have they achieved is it something that you would trade places with have they had the same level of risk tolerance? Have they at least attempted and failed? Like, where is the context of their advice? And once you can classify who you're getting and why they're giving you that advice, you can either choose in that moment, do I accept it or just go, hey, thank you for that, and just be like, delete. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that most of the time you're going to be deleting. And most people, unfortunately, don't delete. They they listen to all these negative things and telling people, yeah, you're dreaming too big. Why do you why do you think you deserve that? Who, who do you think you are? You think you're smarter than your old man? Like, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, like maybe I am. Mm-hmm. 
I, I agree. What do you think about, so, so for me, this is something that I've done recently. I, anyone that's ever given me advice for the most part, not a hundred percent, obviously, because there's certain things that we can't take away, like you mentioned, but overall, I'd say the majority of advice that people have given me in the past, I've kind of just thrown that out, out of my head. I'm just like, okay. And I've only been trying to take experience from people that have actually excelled in whatever advice that they're giving me, whether that be fitness, whether that be life, whether that be business, whether that be podcasting and so forth. So I've only been taking advice from that. What what would you think, uh, what would be your advice or, or any cautions that you might have on that? On which aspect? There's a whole lot of topics. You just I know, I know. So I guess in regards to um, taking advice from people, which, which people would you take advice from and what people wouldn't you? I think there's a lot of experts out there. I think that success has a lot of different paths to get to the same point. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to do a lot of different things, but I think that one of the things I see, especially young entrepreneurs fall into a trap is they try to take too much advice from too many people. So mm-hmm. they're always asking the same question of a hundred people and they're trying to combine all these things to come up with answer. Just pick one and like go all in. Like it's kind of like, if you're going to go pay a coach like me to work with you, you should be listening to your coach, not not your coach and then you know Grant Cardone and then Gary Vee and then Jocko and all these names that get tossed around. Like, Go focus on one, one way to do it and craft your own version of doing that, but quit trying to think that you need all these different pieces of advice to do it. And I'll tell you, like, you know, in Clubhouse, for example, we'll, I'll, I'll be on the stage in some of those big rooms and, and people want business advice. I get it. It's entrepreneurship. That's what I do. And I'll recognize people because people will come up from the audience and I can remember their photos and they'll ask the same question like over and over and over in different rooms and and for weeks. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you ask this person who's well known at solving that problem and they give you an awesome answer two weeks ago, but you haven't done shit with it. Mm -hmm. Like, Why do you keep asking the same question? And what I've determined in my long years, I'm 48, is that people will keep asking the same questions to avoid actually doing the work. So mm. they think that they're always on the search for the, the answer, the cure, the silver bullet, the magic potion, but they're not going to do the actual work. So they're just going to keep asking the question. And for those people, they're never going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's those people are usually stuck in their head. And I, I can even admit to being there myself as well. Um, but I, I've been, I've been working on kicking out those old habits and instilling new ones. Um, I guess referencing to, um, something that you mentioned as well, um, man, I'm drawing a blank. So you're going to hate me on that. So I guess we'll cancel that. We'll throw that out the trash real quick, but I wanted to ask you this as well. I guess from a business standpoint, going back to clubhouse, um, what is when people are asking for what the best return on investment or risk to reward, how do you calculate that in particular to anything, anything that you do? I mean, that's just simple. It's just math. It's Mm -hmm. What's the cost involved of, of building something or marketing it and buying raw goods or products? So it's like, what is the what is actually costing you to do that, and what mm-hmm. is the profit? You know, and so return on investment is it's that's exactly what it is. Really simple. Like, what is the what am I profiting from this investment? Mm-hmm. And if it's just based on marketing, how much am I spending to acquire a customer? And what is the profit after I've already had that marketing expense absorbed into the the product? So. And it's really simple math, and a lot of people do overthink that too. You're right; they they think about what does that even mean. It's like it's simple. It's like if I'm buying, like for example, one of my companies, I sell wheels for cars, and if I'm buying a set of wheels for 
$3,000 from the manufacturer and I'm selling them for 4,000, then my ROI is thousand bucks. So mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's just simple math for me. Mm -hmm. Got you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no, it, it definitely makes sense. I just, um, I guess I'm just explaining it for the people that, because I guess my audience is a little bit more younger, I guess. So for them, it's not uh, such an easy or, or they haven't had that experience in particular. So I just kind of wanted to air that out for them. But I guess the next question that I had for you was what is uh what is a healthy work life balance look like for you or how do you manage that? What what does quality time look like for you and the family? I don't think that work life balance exists, mm -hmm. to be honest. I think that we all have different tolerances and we have different desires, we have different goals. Mm -hmm. You'll often be told you're working too hard by people who don't work hard, mm -hmm. for example. You'll be telling, you'll be told people that you're a workaholic or, or you do this too much by people who aren't achieving what you want to achieve. And the truth is, is you must be willing to make some sacrifices early on, especially in your business, in your career to get where you want to get. And you need to start taking the advice from people who have achieved what you would like to achieve, whether that's a career or your business success or your fitness success. Exactly. You know, all these things are, they're very aligned, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to be really good at something pay people or hire people or work with people who have done those kind of things and realize that work-life balance is, is a, it's a fallacy. Mm. And what it happens to me and I, what I've heard is because people who have not achieved success that they would like, they're often going to throw you know, negative comments or passive aggressive comments to you in order to justify where they're at in life. So when they see you working extra hard, they're going to, and they're, and they're like out of shape and they're, they're not doing well and they're, they're financially just struggling. They're going to tell you that your, your work-life balance is off and that you, know, you should slow down you should relax and because they can't keep up. Mm -hmm. So they're going to just keep saying those kind of things for the rest of their lives. And everybody I know that's become successful when you become a multimillionaire, like you put in work, like there's no easy way to do that. You don't buy a course and put up a website and all this money just starts piling in your door. It just doesn't work that way. So you still have to put in the work. And the problem is, is that, People will see the amount of work that I put in and people like me, we, we put in a lot of work. We're front loading the, the opportunity, the business, the anything that we're getting into because mm -hmm. we want that acceleration curve, that momentum on the backside. By, by making those sacrifices for maybe two to five years, mm -hmm. you're going to free up a whole lot of time on the back end. So, so a lot of times people be like, well, I want to have work-life balance and you know, I want to do this and I want to do that. It's like, that's great. But in 10 years, you're still going to be struggling for work-life balance, and I'm not going to have to work at all. Mm -hmm. So what would you rather have? So they don't think about the future. So what happens is the work-life balance preachers, they're in the same situation their entire life. Mm -hmm. So if it's a financial struggle, they're going to be there for their entire life because they're going to say, well, it's work-life balance. But they're never going to be truly happy because they never get to experience the true freedom of building something and buying something and selling it and exiting and doing all these things to create like i don't you don't have to work anymore like you realize like i became a multimillionaire at 34 mm -hmm. like i work because i'm a workaholic i love to do what i do i enjoy doing this kind of stuff i enjoy coaching people i enjoy writing books i enjoy podcasting I, like i don't consider this work mm -hmm. but now i actually i can put on my calendar i can put on four or five hours a day max and go enjoy the rest of my day doing what i like to do working on driving on cars or going to the gym or spending with family. So, you know, most people out there working eight, nine, 10, 12 hours, like I used to, like 
they're going to do that for the rest of their life. And I figured out how to not do that. So a good answer is that it's, it's different for everybody Mm -hmm. and you have to determine what's right for you. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you just, you, you basically did an exchange of time and, and like the engineer that's inside of you, you figured out that was the best course of action. So that way you can relax further on into the future. So you wouldn't have to worry. So you wouldn't have to rely on the 401k like everyone relies on. You wouldn't have to rely on working on past your retirement and so forth. And I think that's where I want to be. On, I want to be as well. I'd rather work a lot harder right now than I would be in the future. Even if that means missing out nights, um, I guess, partying or drinking, I'd rather be at the gym. I'd rather be working on this. I'd rather be doing whatever, whatever's going to drive me, whatever's going to lead me to being, being on my own, I guess, kind of going onto the ocean and, and just being the boat just so that way I'm self-sustaining and I'm not having to worry on other people being the captain of my life. So that, that, that's, that, that's one of my goals, I guess, for the next few years. And I'm going to be working at that hard. Um, another thing that I wanted to get to as well, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got into public speaking as well? Cause you said you started that in 2017 and, and you were, and I, I did like that post where you were saying that, uh, a lot more people would rather die than public speak as well. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's true. I, I grew up with bullies in grade school. Like most people, you either were the bully or you got bullied and you just learn to conform through society and to fit in. They tell you, if you, if you stand out, you're going to get your head chopped off. Right. So you just kind of learn how to blend in and be a chameleon and be liked by everybody and try to be accepted by everybody. And that's what kind of keeps most people from achieving what they truly want to be. So I was always a, an extrovert internally, but I had to operate as an introvert because of society. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Although I'd achieved success in corporate levels and in business, I had the occasional courage to speak in front of my team. And I had teams of 75 people in my business, and I've managed hundreds of millions of dollars in projects in corporate side with teams of 75 to 100 people typically. And you know, I was the boss, and I could stand up in front of them and do a pep rally like, hey, today we're kicking off this project, and here's the objectives, and you know, here's a schedule, and here's my boring ass slideshow that I'm going to put you through for the next hour. And, and you fool yourself because you think that you, since you can speak in front of other people that you must be a public speaker. Cause most people think like, Oh, that's what it takes. It's the occasional courage to be a leader. It's like, okay, cool. Well, I lied to myself for 20 years, you know, because I knew that I could improve, but I thought I got this. I'm, I'm already good at that. I don't need, I need to go focus on this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I was basically, thinking about how am I going to impact this world? And, and you start to observe the the people that are you perceive at the top of the category, whatever industry in it, and what are they doing to do that? And so, you know, being a, a social media person and, you know, you see people making videos and you say, man, everything's going to video and voice. It's, it's just going that way. I mean, I, I love to write copy just like everybody else, but it's going to video and voice. And I said, if I'm going to compete in that same arena with those people, I need to do what the best people do. And, it was really uncomfortable for me to do videos and, and public speak. And I actually discovered I had real stage fright when I went, I was asked to go represent a company. I was a, I was a consultant for a natural gas company. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to attend a, a large convention and their behalf, the vice president couldn't attend last minute. And he asked me to go take, you know, re- represent the company. I was like, sure. It's right by my house. I'll, I'll enjoy that. Paying me my consultant rates. Absolutely. I'd be happy to go sit at a conference. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy on the stage and he was asking for some 
ideas that they could share bring in the industry anybody that came from the different industry i came from offshore oil different industries so you know, i was sitting near the front vip table representing the company i raised my hand and he called on me first i was like shit like i didn't expect that so mm-hmm. i started to blurt out the answer and he's like hold up let's get this guy a microphone so everybody in the room can hear him and there's a thousand people in the room like a legit giant hall a thousand people i didn't know anybody right mm-hmm. i was out of my element and so I stood up, and then the, the lady on the other side of the room has got that microphone, and she must have been the slowest walker. Either I was visualizing how slow she was, <laughs> or she must have been feeling that way. But I could feel uh, the, the cotton mouth. I could feel mm-hmm. the armpits starting to sweat. Luckily, I had a jacket on, so you couldn't see that. And I started to feel hot, and I felt like the top of my head was sweating a little bit, kind of like when you eat too much spicy food. Mm-hmm. And, and I just remember my hands feeling sweaty. And I was waiting for the stupid microphone and finally got there and, and, I, and I took it. I could see my hand was shaking a little bit and I had a shaky voice and I gave the answer to the guy on the stage and I was like, that was an excellent idea. And then everybody applauded and I sat down and for the next few minutes, I proceeded to try to wipe the sweat off my face with a stupid cloth napkin that never absorbs sweat. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, what the hell just happened there? And, you know, for most people who are less daredevil than me, they would say, well, you know what? I'm never going to raise my hand again. I'm never going to sit in the front row again. I'm never going to go to a speaking conference ever again. I'm just going to avoid that whole scenario. But for me, I was like, you know what? I just discovered I have real stage fright. And it, what it really made me start to be aware is that all the people that had heard me speak in the past, my, my people that reported to me, they were a captive audience. I was the boss. So when the boss is speaking, you don't go take a piss break or surf Instagram on your phone or just get up and leave. It's like they're a captive audience. Yeah, you're there for the project thing. They're all being paid to sit there. So talk about a ding to ego, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of always goes back to ego a lot of times. I said, man, I need to improve at this. So what do I need to do to get over this? And so go on Google and like anybody else, like how do you get better at public speaking? And I said, hey, join Toastmasters, hire a speaking coach practice doing videos and that's just what I did. It's like, okay, again, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. What was, uh, I guess, what was one of the best pieces of advice you've, you've received from, um, I guess from your coach when you were on, on, uh, on that website, I believe that's what it was. Toastmasters. Yeah. Toastmasters is a nonprofit organization that's international mm-hmm. and it's, they teach you public speaking and leadership. It's, it's a, usually one meeting a week. It's different schedules. There's clubs all over the, world and it's really inexpensive so i would highly recommend if anybody that wants to get better on videos or clubhouse or on Mm -hmm. stages definitely join that was the cheapest personal development life changer i've ever experienced in my life okay but yeah what what would you say the best piece of advice that you received in regards to overcoming those fears or becoming a better speaker is and there's so many tactics most people don't realize with public speaking public speaking is not like I said, the courage to speak in front of people. That's a very small percentage of what it actually is because a mm-hmm. lot of people join Toastmasters that are very afraid of speaking. They've never spoken in front of anybody before. So they still come in and within three to six months, I've, I've seen them transformed into completely different people. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand that public speaking is the same tactics and skills whether I'm speaking to one person or 1,000 people. It's about having the vocal inflections, the very varying in the volume of your voice you can speak really quiet low to make more impact you can speak to really fast speeds like this to get really the attention you can slow things down because i want to draw you in on this one key moment and 
not speaking monotone. That's a bad, that's a big one for dudes. Yeah. Because dudes, we tend to speak monotone, one volume, one pitch, one cadence, and mm-hmm. it's conversational. And women have a little bit easier because they're used to speaking in emotion with their friends, even as little girls. Yeah. And, and it's more normal for them to do that, more comfortable to have a different range in their voice. So when they're speaking, you hear me accentuate words like that word, accentuate words. I do that because I want you to listen to what I'm saying because we all have something to say. We all, everybody listening or watching, we all have something to say. But unless you learn how to effectively communicate that, they're not going to hear what you say. So if you're going to speak, you want people to remember and get something from it. So go learn how to do that exceptionally well. And I wish I would have taken it in 18, 19 years old because as though, yeah, I achieved success. I, would have, I know that would have greatly impacted my success in career, entrepreneurship, relationships, everything mm-hmm. being able to do the communication skills I have. So learn the vocal variety, learn the presence, get rid of filler words, the um and and. And, and like. Uh, and you know, and all things that distract from <laughs> I do that sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and for millennials, we say the millennial like. Because yeah. millennials usually say like, 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 you know, and like I did this and like I did this. It's like, <laughs> quit saying that. Yeah. So what happens is when you go join these things, we have people that actually evaluate you speaking at the front of the room and they're taking a scorecard and their contribution to the evening is going to the front of the room and giving a report. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jesus, you said um 15 times <laughs> and you said like 20 times and you said um this and you pause this and you mispronounce this word. And so what happens is this, is, this starts to build your awareness of the things that you can do to improve. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you gain that awareness, you start to realize that I can control every single word that comes out of my mouth or what doesn't come out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize, okay, I don't need to say, um, I can just pause. I don't need to say like, because it doesn't belong in that sentence at all. Like, why am I saying that? It's usually because you learn that from the people you hang around with. They're just saying that all the time. And you, you kind of just absorb the way other people speak, just like people have accents. They learn it from people they're around. Right. Mm-hmm. So it just really raises the awareness. And instead of speaking, as a knee-jerk reaction, whenever you think of something and you say it, you actually will think of it, you'll pause as a speaker, you'll think about what is the sentence formulation and what are the words that I can accentuate with volume or range or, or pitch, and then I say it. So there's a, a, there's a momentary pause between what I think and what I speak. And it's, most people just think speak at the same time. Okay. I guess going back to how you were in 2017 compared to now, what are some things that you've noticed in regards to your speech? Is there anything that you've... If you would have, if you would have interviewed me in 2016, mm-hmm. I called the old version of Tony the Monotony. The Monotony, I love that. Yeah. I have all the videos and yeah. I, I make people in my entrepreneurship group do video challenges for 30 mm-hmm. days. One, some of them have gone 365 days just to match me and I will show them those videos. I'm never going to delete all those old videos because... Mm-hmm. I want to show people where I started and, and I knew I sucked and I, it was the best I could literally do. So mm-hmm. 2017, I would have, I would have talked like this. Hey, hey, Seuss, thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's a, it's a um, great opportunity and I, I, I can't wait to um, give some value to your listeners. And it's just a great thing. I mean, I really appreciate this opportunity. And, it, and if I would have spoke like that, you guys would have been bored in the first 10 seconds and like turn this off. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, I guess, like the dull old corporate person at whatever company, XYZ, right? 
So it's they they don't have a, any emotion, any expression. They're just flatline for the most part. Flat, one speed, one volume, one tone. Just blah 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 blah. <laughs> That's what most people in the audience would hear. Blah 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 blah. blah. Did they, what did he say? I don't know. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, is there anything in? I guess going back to that question, is there anything in particular that you noticed that you've removed from your speech patterns before as to now? What was your common thing that you were doing that wasn't up to par with what you're doing right now? I think for me, the vocal range, the pitch, going mm-hmm. to be able to speak high and, and, and low, and I, I typically have a low voice. Mm-hmm. And most people kind of just hang out in their comfort comfortable voice but when you want to accentuate words you know, hit a higher note there mm-hmm. you have to learn how to do that and it's, it's not comfortable for you to do that because each time you push the range it becomes your new normal mm-hmm. and then you gotta push it a little bit higher and then you make a new normal and, you, and then after enough reps it starts to become really easy to do that but it's just not comfortable to speak like that it's like it's really a lot like acting school right mm-hmm. because when you're speaking as a podcaster or on a stage or on a video you still have to be entertaining. Yeah. Right. You still have to say things that are entertaining. And if you lose sight that there's still entertainment value required, no matter how smart you are, how much you're trying to educate and inspire, if you can't say things to make people entertained, they're not going to watch because other people who have trained themselves will do a whole lot better. You can imagine like watching a television show or a movie where you had two characters speaking and dialogue and they were just ba 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 ba. You'd be like, this is the worst show ever. These actors suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking, it's the same thing as podcasting. It's, it's, you have to you have to train to get improved. You always should be improving these things. Mm-hmm. That's what's crazy to me when you're when you're listening to all these things in regards to public speaking. Uh, one of the things I've noticed on my own listening to my own podcast, actually, real quick, a uh, uh, little side note, I always say in regards to, I'm like, I'm trying to work or cutting that off or at least implement it a lot less. I'm like, shit. So, <laughs> so I'm working on certain things and obviously like certain like, 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 like right there. Like that's an example, right? Blah. But you know what, if, what I would say is like, go back and listen to your podcast mm-hmm. episodes with a pen and a paper. Yeah. Listen for ums, likes. When you're using and between two sentences that, that, that aren't related, like mm-hmm. if I were to say, it looks really gloomy outside and I'm going <laughs> to the gym today. Like those don't, like people use and as an um. It's, mm-hmm. it's, what they're doing is they're verbalizing a thought process rather than just being silent. So you always want to replace those with a silent pause. You can actually pause for three seconds and most people won't even notice. And also by pausing, it actually makes you sound a little bit more intriguing and more intelligent, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, this person speaks a little different. They don't know why you're different, but they you just sound different. So there's a lot of ways to learn influence and strategies just by learning how to communicate properly. And most people, and even me, I didn't understand all this stuff until I actually had training. I was like, holy crap, this is like a whole new world of speaking and mm-hmm. understanding how to get people to do the things that I'm requesting and influencing them. I was like, this is crazy. I, I, I can only imagine what it would have, how it could have changed my life had I known this as a teenager. Mm-hmm. That sounds insane. That's essentially, it's like, um, I guess like, it's like a science from the sounds of it, like a very meticulous one. Totally. You know, you know what that reminds me of what you were going on right now? Did you ever watch the Elon Musk and Joe Rogan podcast? I watched part of it, not all of it. Okay. There was a lot. He's not a good speaker, by the way. No? Okay. He's very insightful, but he is not a good speaker. Definitely. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. When you were saying, uh, when you were talking about the pauses, he he would formulate a thought in his head and he would pause for like 
more than more more longer than normal, like three to five seconds, like three to five seconds, and and then he would continue to speak to Joe Rogan. But it, it was very intriguing. But like you said, he wasn't that great of a speaker at the same time because you're a lot more articulate, you're a lot more descriptive as opposed to where he was. He he he's definitely insightful. Otherwise, he wouldn't be at where he's at. But yeah, he's, he's a genius. Mm-hmm. He definitely learned from public speaking. But but here's the problem: is that a lot of people who are intellectual a lot of people who are esteemed a lot of people who are successful mm-hmm. their ego will not allow them to go get public speaking lessons mm-hmm. they're like well i'm already super important i'm already famous i don't have to invest in myself screw those people and you know that that's that's kind of on their end that's ego again right mm-hmm. i i i mentioned this in almost every other podcast ego is the fucking devil ego will stop okay. you from Becoming who you're meant to be. Ego is ego will fuck up your personal life. It'll fuck up your business. It'll fuck up everything. Yeah. Job, your friendships, everything. Mm -hmm. Always. Yeah, it's one of the most toxic things that that anyone can have. I guess let me ask you this as well. In regards to being an author, how did that come about? For me. I was in a near-death experience in 2015. I raced cars. I hit a concrete wall at 130 miles per hour. Oh, shit. And to me, after that moment, I realized I need to go create more impact in the world. Only people who benefited from my knowledge and experience were people that worked for me or friends and family, right? Because Mm -hmm. I I wasn't very public about what I did and how to achieve that kind of stuff. And I always had people telling me, like, hey, you should be teaching this stuff. You know a lot of stuff. You, You can serve the world by teaching this stuff. And I've been, I've been hearing that for 15 years and I've helped some of the former staff of mine build seven, eight and nine figure businesses just by mentoring them because they, they knew me. And I knew that I could teach people that, but I didn't like being in camera. I had stage fright. I didn't want to make my life real public. I had a really comfortable lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so after the accident, I decided to leave corporate and, and not really focus on that and go to create more impact because I realized that time is valuable and that no day is guaranteed because I really thought I was going to die in that moment. So I started thinking about, okay, I need to go write this book that had been in my head for about five years before I even wrote it. Because the funny thing about this dude is that I was still coming at from a, from a cowardly position. And it sounds really weird to say that, but I didn't want to do the videos and I didn't want to be on stage and I didn't want to podcast and all this stuff. So I thought, man, if I could just write a book, I can take what's in my mind and, thousands of people could potentially read it and then I would feel satisfied like I made my impact you know if it does good it does good if it does bad it does bad like I tried Mm -hmm. so it's a cowardly position I I started admitting this I knew this back when I was writing but I started admitting this in recent months on interviews and some people will DM me like oh my god I can't believe you admitted writing a book is cowardly like it was because you and I Jesus we could be hanging out walking around and a New York Times bestseller could walk right past us and we wouldn't even recognize them. Mm-hmm. Unless they were a celebrity, you wouldn't recognize like best-selling authors. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't. You know? So it's, it's a great way to potentially make impact without being known. Right? Mm-hmm. And what happened was that I just wrote this book and, and I validate products and ideas just like any other product and idea of being an entrepreneur. I said, okay. I went to my Facebook and I had maybe 1,200 friends at the time and I said, hey, I decided I'm going to write a book. I kind of knew what a book I wanted to write, you know, entrepreneurship, something. 
So I'm going to write a book. What do you guys want to learn from me? And other than some of my friends like making their jokes, right? That increases yeah. engagement. That's cool. It's fine. I, yeah. I, I play a lot. Of, I like to laugh. Same. And, and so, you know, other than like be a male stripper and all this kind of funny <laughs> stuff and how to drive cars fast and like whatever. So, but I, about 75% of the responses were like, we want to know how you became successful. We want to know about business. Mm. Like, cool. So that validated the idea. So here's the funny thing about ego again, right? It keeps, it's important. I, I like that listeners are keep hearing the word ego because they need to gain the awareness of this. Yeah. So, well, okay. They validated my idea. They, they know that I want to write a book about entrepreneurship. So I feel validated that I am a successful entrepreneur. So therefore I'm going to go write this high level strategy entrepreneurship book and it's going to benefit thousands of people. And so as entrepreneurs, we get really excited about the newest things we learn. So that usually is the highest level strategies that you learn because all the baseline stuff, you kind of like operate in the background, you know that stuff already. So luckily ego awareness said, you know what? I need to go further refine this, this offering and, and validate the idea again. It's okay, guys, I'm going to write this book about how to start your first business and, and grow it to seven figures. What would you like? What questions would you like answered in this book? Right. And I'm thinking like, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. They're going to ask me all this advanced stuff and it's going to be really cool. And dude, it was like 90% of the questions were really basic stuff. Okay. How did you name your company? What's an LLC or a corp? Uh, How do you get the money to do this? What is a good website? How do you market? What are accounting principles? You know, all these basic things where somebody with a high level of ego would have been like, oh, that's that's basic looking stuff. I am so far above that. I don't want to waste my time on basic stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what an ego person would have said. They would have said, I'm going to go write the book I think that they need, not the book that they want. They're telling you what they want. But me being a marketer and a product developer, I said, hey, if I can answer all these questions at a very high level of detail and give them examples and stories that go along with those, I'm going to produce a product, which is my book, that they will buy. See, that's what a marketer does. That's what a true product developer does. Mm -hmm. So that's what became the Side Hustle Millionaire, the book. And I wrote the book, and it came out in in May of 2018. So we're actually Mm -hmm. entering in in year three now. It sold over 1,000 copies in the first week, became a number one bestseller in the small business category. Mm -hmm. It hit number 11 in all of personal development books like on Amazon, which is crazy. I was hoping to get the top 10, but it made it to number 11. But all those big name authors that you love to read and uh, fill up my bookshelf behind me, Mm -hmm. my little self-published book beat like all those, all those authors for a while. And I was really proud of that, but it's a testament of good marketing, good positioning Mm -hmm. and building the support network, keeping them involved in the project and, and making them buy into what they were being involved in. And then also just, creating what people wanted you know people mm. wanted to know how to make real money with side businesses yeah no congratulations because that's that's a freaking amazing achievement right there to to begin just uh, like it almost like kind of irks me for you i'm like he should have been number 10 at least god damn it, oh, man, it would have been, been a great screenshot yeah that would screenshot of number 11 are you gonna are you gonna aim for another book by any chance or are you gonna possibly try to make it into yeah. that mark i'm actually blocking out time this year in 2021 to write my second book. And I'm going to, I'm going to challenge myself a little bit more. It's going to be entrepreneurship based because that's what I love. Mm-hmm. I love cars and entrepreneurship. That's only two things I've really loved since even being a kid, mm-hmm. but I'm going to write a fiction book that is more, I, I want to build something that maybe a movie at some point that still has an entrepreneurial journey in it. 
Okay, okay. Um, would you be doing that over there in Texas, or would you be coming to LA or to New York, or do you have like any thoughts on that, or is that still farther down the road? I'm gonna ride it here. I ride it, yeah, here in Texas. Okay, that's insane, man. No, I mean, congratulations on that. I. I haven't even thought about that, like in in a way to essentially help people out, kind of leave your legacy and and your life skills that you've learned without becoming famous to, to the point where you can enjoy your life comfortably. I think that's like the perfect sweet spot without having to lose your freedom, without you know, with without having that same exposure to celebrities do, which is I guess people a lot of a lot of people crave the attention and everything, but at the end of the day, what can they really do? They're they're separated from from everyday life, from everyday activities and it's and then people just want to use them. People just want to get autographs, get them selfies in for Instagram or whatever it might be, all that basic shit. But it's I mean my my purpose when when people ask me what my purpose is and it mm-hmm. took me a while to come up with it. And and here's the thing Young listeners, I don't expect people to know the meaning of life or their purpose, and I don't find by no means do I want you to think that you need to adopt a big purpose like I have now. But understand, your purpose will change in each decade of your life, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I can remember my teens, it was maybe just trying to fit in and get a cute girlfriend and play good football and and, and that kind of stuff. And my twenties, my purpose was maybe to get education, get some experience look for roles of potential authority or responsibility increases to prove myself. 30 was really focused on just stacking money and making money and, and implementing these, the skills and the knowledge that I'd built in my twenties. My forties was more about focusing on legacy and family and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And nowadays my purpose is to impact the generational legacy of millions of people by teaching them confidence and business principles, because we're all here for a reason. Every one of us, and for me, the best thing I can do to serve this world is teach people the freedom that they can achieve by entrepreneurship. And that does require attention. And it does require me to be a public speaker. And it does it require me to be an interviewer. And it does require me to write books and be on podcasts and have my own show and gain that attention. So I love fans because they are serving my purpose. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess going back to... Um your every decade serve its own purpose where did you fit in um a relationship with that with your wife how did that come out to be how big of a priority was it um i would assume your mission in life to become free was higher than the relationship maybe obviously i can't speak on you for that which is why i'm curious as to your thought process and and how that how you prioritize everything well i'll I'll give you two good examples my my son's mother we split up when my son was about one years old and okay. it's because she did not support anything that I did. And she was also alcoholic and verbally abusive. And I didn't grow up like that and I just okay. didn't tolerate it. But I, the hardest decision I ever made was leaving that relationship because I was so worried about who was going to be the stepfather for my son because you know, just her character issues. And, you know, that was a big fear. And I stuck in that relationship probably six, seven months too long. I was depressed and, it was a miserable time in my life. Mm-hmm. We're, we're just never meant to be, right? Just, just never meant to be. Okay. And I remember she would, just, she would actually laugh at my business ideas. She'd say, you know, guys talking about cars on the internet is stupid and you're wasting your time. And you know, that's the business that literally went to make millions of dollars later on. So mm-hmm. you know, I met my wife when my son was about three years old and you know, just turning three. And you know, we've been there ever since, so like 18 years. Okay. And she's always supported what I did. And she knows that I have crazy ideas, but she's never talked me out of those. I mean, she, she keeps me grounded in reality a lot of times, but 
it's, it's a whole lot different dynamic and relationship. So if you guys are listening to this and you're with a girl or you're women and you're, you're with a dude or whoever you decide to be with your partner and they're not supporting you, not currently, they don't have to, they don't have to do what you do, right? They don't have, if you're big in personal development, that don't mean they need to be like that way, but they need to understand why you want to be like that way. So they need to support why you do things and, and how you do things, but they don't necessarily need to be like part of that. But you definitely don't want to be in relationships with people who make fun of you or passively aggressive, ridicule you, or like tell you you're wasting your time and your money and belittle you and tell you your dreams are too big. Like if you're in those kind of relationships, you got to cut those loose right away and just like move on. There's better people out there for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one way of just just cutting the loss before it ends up dragging you down further further into the future. Um, I, I think that was very nicely said, Tony. So I, I, I appreciate that insight and people that are listening, I'm sure they'll take that to heart. Um, I don't know specifics into like what, what kind of relationship issues that they're having or not, but I, I'm sure some people will take something out of this. Um, but yeah, but how did I, how did you prioritize, um, I, I guess time with, uh, with your son and I believe your wife right now, yeah. uh, with your business I mean, how did you how did you manage I, I, that i basically became a weekend dad he's in the houston area and I just basically was the weekend dad at that point i just tried to be the best weekend dad i could be and you know we still have a great relationship today and he got to see you know his mom do the the struggle and you know if you read the book rich dad poor dad like he's literally grown up seeing both sides of that mm-hmm. you know and you know, it's it's opened up his eyes you know he, he he decided that he got a lot of he got away with a lot by living with his mom, obviously, because I'm more disciplined and more you know, demanding about things. Mm-hmm. But now that he's an adult, even at age 18, he realized like, hey, dad, I probably would have had a whole lot different life like living with you, and I probably would have you know done this, this, and this. I said, yeah, no doubt you would have because I would have kept you on that path, you know. So I just like I said, I don't like to tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. But I've always given the advice, and that now he always comes to advice for me. So that's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. So you're there as a support system, as a pillar for him. Yeah. Okay. Did you did you if you were to put it, uh, you were to prioritize, I guess your your business and um, your wife and your son. How would you be able to? Because I know that's a tough one to even answer. Because obviously, I would just for me personally, I'd probably say family's number one. But how how did you, as an entrepreneur, somebody who was able to make millions and millions of dollars, how did you prioritize that? Because I know sometimes in order to get to that point in your life, sometimes you have to miss out on those birthdays. Sometimes you have to, you have to miss out on those special events. But then at the end of the day, you can also make time for what's important. So I, I wanted to hear that from an entrepreneur's perspective. Yeah, I, I live my daily life on a calendar. So my, mm-hmm. I use my Gmail calendar. It's free. Everybody's got access to those if they get a Gmail account. And it's on my phone. It's on my computer. They, mm-hmm. they speak to each other. They are always synced up. And, and and if you're not living based on a calendar, even if you've got a normal job, just block out the eight, nine hours on your calendar and start to monitor what you do. And so for one, if you can live by the calendar, it creates a lot less anxiety and, and overwhelm in your life because for one, you don't have to remember all the things you need to do. It's on your calendar. So mm-hmm. What this allows you to do is also be hyper-focused on what you should be doing in that moment. So you and I are on this call. It was on my calendar. We, we actually did it on a Saturday, right? Just, mm-hmm. We scheduled it. It's on there so I can be fully present with you in this moment. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking about what I got to do in an hour or what I got to do Monday or Tuesday or what because it's on my calendar. It's, it's all written down. I don't have to remember it. So I, I block out social time, right? Mm-hmm. And I block out time for 
things have significance, things that I need to, the, the projects I want to build. Like, for example, this next book that I'm writing, I'm going to start blocking out time this quarter. And really, it's going to take me probably six to nine months to write this next book because it's a longer book format. But it's, I'm going to start guarding time. And I know that I like to get into a creative writing zone, usually late morning, 9 a.m. to 11. So I'll block out two-hour increments maybe every other day. Because if I, I'm determined if I do that every day, it kind of gets me into a writer block. So every other day, because it gives me a day in between to kind of come up with a new idea or something and, and write the following day. So I'll, bo- I'll block that time out. And the way you prioritize is that whenever you're offered an opportunity or a distraction that coincides with that time, you can do a quick analysis, like which of these is more important, mm-hmm. right? And when you start to realize, like, writing my book can change the trajectory of my life and it can benefit my greater purpose – it's not as important as going to have you know beers with my friends or, or going to a two-year-old's birthday party who's not even going to know that I'm there. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's you do miss out on some of those opportunities. So I don't believe you know in family first. I think that's honorable when people say that, but I don't mm-hmm. always think it's realistic because a lot of we're born into our family or we're married into a family. That doesn't mean like they're the best people to be around. I mm-hmm. mean I don't cut people slack if they're toxic because they're related to me. So. If my mom, if my mom was a big asshole, and and I wouldn't be around her, you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. I think people cut their family too much slack and maybe give them too much attention. They're not the right people to be around. You know, they're not supporting them. They laugh at them, or they make fun of what you do, and you know, just that, that's just not the people you need to be around. So family first. No, I think people first, right? Mm-hmm. People that matter first. So if that's your wife, your children, they they come first. But family, like as a general quote, nope, doesn't work for me. There's, there's assholes in every family and there's a lot of people that I wouldn't want to hang around with, to mm. be honest. So, um, yeah, you just, you just prioritize as you go, dude, you just got to live by the calendar. And if you don't have a calendar, then you're missing a key part of success because everybody that's successful lives on a daily calendar, including weekends. Mm-hmm. I like that. I've never even thought about it from that perspective in regards to, um, even jotting down when you're having social time as well, just being a little bit more detail oriented with how you're living your life, how, kind of seeing it from an overall perspective, kind of stepping a step backwards and and reviewing your life, uh, like on a day to day, week to week, like um, you know, it, it's it's crazy to me. Um, I I really appreciate that insight, Tony. I guess the last question that I wanted to ask you is, what's the best piece of advice that you think you've ever received? I think the number one piece of advice that most people struggle with is Mm -hmm. worrying about too much about what people think or say about them. Mm -hmm. I think that the fear of potential criticism paralyzes us and keeps us from starting the business or entering the gym if we're obese because we're worried about what people are going to see us and think about us. And, and it's unfortunate because a lot of our dreams are held back by our potential and it's, and it's, it's all in our head. And, and the way I encourage the people in my group is that, you know, there are always going to be critics and haters and naysayers. There's always going to be those people. So we give those people too much attention. And the thing is, is there's, there's probably some people listening like, well, Tony, I, I get along with everybody. Nobody hates me and everybody likes me. So what are you talking about? And they're really proud of that. And what I tell them is that if you don't have a haters, naysayers, or critics, you're obscure. It means nobody knows who you are. You're not doing anything worth noticing. And it sounds like tough love because that's true. Mm-hmm. Because anybody that who does something worth noticing will develop those people. I mean, you're named after Jesus. Yeah. Jesus trying to change the world with his gospel and traveling the world and building a 
massive group of followers who believed in him and did he have haters yes did a lot a did lot critics did he have murderers mm-hmm. so even the best people in history all the people you can imagine that changed the world they all had haters naysers mother Teresa has them yeah Martin Luther King like anybody that's trying to change the world they no. all had them so what makes you as a listener so special that you're not going to have those mm-hmm. so you gotta shift and understand that you gotta quit letting these people who would never attend your funeral dictate your life right mm-hmm. because those people that are negative the five percent of the people that you will find in your life they never support you anyways they would never refer business to you they would never golf clap you when you succeed they're always going to be those people. So what I always tell people is go, go earn your haters. Mm-hmm. And understand that that is part of the game and that you're not playing the game big enough if you don't have any of those yet. So it's part of the game and go celebrate the hate. You know, we actually tell people if you get a troll or someone talking shit on your social media, go screenshot that shit, bring it back to the group and we'll celebrate that with you. Because when you finally get haters, mm-hmm. you're finally doing something worth noticing. Mm-hmm. I... I I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, I don't know something about me recently. Like I've I've never really had quote unquote haters until recently, and then but out of nowhere recently I've been like fuck yeah, like fuck you. I'm just like I don't give a shit. Like what are you doing? You're not doing anything. You feel for the fire, bro. Yeah, and at the same time I'm like you're just reflecting how you feel on yourself because you could never come out and do this, and that's your own personal insecurities. So that, that's one of the things I've noticed that I'm like, you're just exposing how you really think, how you really are. So I'm like, it just looks embarrassing for uh, for you on my end, but I don't know. You'll never be hated by somebody doing more than you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because they're too busy. They're too focused working on their own thing. And then if yeah. they have time to hate on you, they're not doing shit on their own. You know, and here's the thing. Here's a, here's a funny thing that most people don't realize is that haters and critics come at all socioeconomic levels. Mm-hmm. So it's not a poverty mindset. It's not a middle class mindset. It's not. It's not an affluent. Mind, it's a. It's a human mindset. And mm-hmm. I've been around people who are what I would say is net worth millionaires who have successful careers and they got a nice house and cars. And I've been around those people that were still ended up becoming critics. They're really fancy and friendly when they can monetize or, or gain some kind of a advantage from being your friend. Mm-hmm. And then when you start to do something else that makes them uncomfortable by, by trying to climb off of that plateau that you're all hanging out with and trying to improve your life or going on a fitness journey or starting a new business or learning a new skill, it makes them really uncomfortable about themselves because they're underperforming and they realize that they could do it, but they don't have the courage to do it. So mm-hmm. rather than coming along your journey, they're going to throw rocks at you, try to kick the ladder out from under you and make you come back down to the plateau with them so you can restore comfort to them. Because what happens is you start to bright, your, your light starts to shine really bright, mm-hmm. you get brighter and brighter. It illuminates the darkness in the people around you. And, and most people seek comfort and they don't like being illuminated in their darkness so they're gonna, they're gonna ask you to turn your light down and dim your light for them to make them feel better about themselves. So that's the whole psychology of haters, like wrapped up in like in a minute. So if you can understand, like you said, Jesus, it's them, it's not you. Mm-hmm. Just, just fucking deal with it and just go on, keep keep pushing. I think that's amazing advice, and uh, you you've been saying everything perfectly on point. I want to thank the people that taught you how to speak so well too. What, what was the website again? One more time. Toastmasters.org. I want to thank Toastmasters.org because that's that's pure facts on your end. Um, and you're an amazing person. And I think you deserve all the success you've had and will have in the future. Where can people follow you? 
My website is 365driven.com, and that's the name of my podcast, 365driven. And from there, you'll find my socials, my best-selling book site, Hustle Millionaire, and everything I'm involved with. Just keep it easy, 365driven.com. Awesome. And then I'll add your, um, your username on Clubhouse and Instagram and any uh, any other thing I can find. I'll add that in the description on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and your insight, Tony. I really appreciated that perspective from an entrepreneur. So I appreciate that. Hey, man, I love talking to young entrepreneurs like yourself and <laughs> your energy. And I wish you well, and I know you're going to do well, man.